However many nations live in the world today, however many countless people, they all had but one dawn, the Popol Vuh. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's joining me today. I really appreciate you dropping by and listening to this episode and all the others. If you're new, uh, welcome. We do have a a very extensive back catalog, and if you're a returning listener, thank you again as well. So, this week we'll be talking about the people in the area that today covers parts of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama, or as it is sometimes collectively known as Mesoamerica. Now, as you might have guessed, if you've listened to the episodes talking about the etymology of the Tigris and Euphrates, the Meso in Mesoamerica is the same as the Meso in Mesopotamia. So it literally translates as Middle America. And this term was coined by a German anthropologist, Paul Kirchhoff, in the 1920s or 1930s. He also coined some other terms to define other sub-regions of uh, specifically Mexico and uh, Central America, but uh, no one really uses them anymore. I don't think they called on quite as well as Mesoamerica did. Uh, Also, I just realized that I didn't dive into the origin of the name America uh, like I have for Australia. Um, And I feel that it is fair that I do so, so I'm going to go ahead and do that now. I'll also go over Africa and Asia and Europe as well, but the origin of those names are um, a bit older than what we've discussed for Australia and um, what we're getting ready to discuss here about America. Uh, So we'll get to them a whole lot sooner than we would with America and Australia. Now, America comes from the Florentine navigator and sailor, Amerigo Vespucci. Uh, Now, some of Vespucci's exploits and tales are disputed, but most agree that at a minimum he made two trips to the New World from Europe in the late 1490s and early 1500s. It's very possible he made more, but there are two that I think no one disputes. Um, Both of these trips were made to the Caribbean and South American coasts around what is now modern Brazil. And a couple of works written under his name were released between 1503 and 1505. And these were read all over Europe, and they captured kind of the imagination of uh, all these different European peoples. Now, in these works, Vespucci described all of the unique aspects and wonders of the lands that he had uh, vehemently, or that he had visited, and he um, he vehemently claimed that Brazil was part of a completely different continent than Asia, and the islands of the Caribbean were not the Indies of the Pacific, the East Indies specifically. Um, now, he was probably not the first person to realize this, but he was among them, and he was uh, the first to kind of write about it and spread it to a much wider audience. And his writings became the most uh, influential in kind of spreading this idea to people less knowledgeable about such matters. Now, there had always been um, theories um, 
that you know there there were more unknown continents. Again, we talked about Australia, how there there was this southern continent that no one knew about. That was kind of in the same vein, but um, he was one that was basically saying, "Yes, we found these new places. They're here." Um, and these were you know such uh, influential uh, writings. Um, the uh, two uh, cartographers, uh, a Dutchman by the name of Martin Waldseemuller and Germans, uh, a German scholar by the name of Matthias Ringman, uh, they created a, a kind of a new world map in 1507 based on the expanding European knowledge of the world. Um, they were you know, trying to improve on these maps from the Renaissance era that they had rediscovered as part of, uh, you know, like uh, studying the old classics, uh, Ptolemy and things like that. Um, and with the um, this knowledge, they um, named the regions that Vespucci described as America, after Vespucci's Latinized name, Americus Vespucius. Uh, now, for the meaning of Amerigo, it's actually um, related to uh, the American name Henry. Uh, Amer Amerigo is very close to Enrico. They're they're both they both are have a similar origin. Like if you break down their meaning, like et etymologically, um, Amerigo is kind of like a it's a biform for Enrico. Uh, Enrico became a more popular name in Italy, so you don't see Amerigo quite as much. Um, but they mean essentially the same mean, uh, same thing. Excuse me, something close along the lines of, um, well, the I think the literal translation is home ruler, but I think if you actually like kind of um, broke it down, in this case, it would be something like um, master. Um, or, um, I guess, a, a workmaster, so a master workman, someone in charge who, who's, like, very uh, skilled at a task. Um, now, that can be debated, uh, and again, sometimes with translations, especially with names, you have to take a little bit of um, leeway or, like, get a little creative sometimes, but essentially you can think of it as, um, as master uh, workman or master of... Of some type of enterprise, um, and uh, Amerigo and Enrico come from like an old German name, um, which was something like uh, Heinrich, uh, which became into. It's actually it actually evolved into two different names, Emmerich and Heinrich. So those have the same origin, uh, which is like. Um, Probably something close to Amlazrihi or Amazri, something like that. Um, and that's a very butchered Proto-Germanic name. But uh, it'd be something like Brave Ruler or Strong Ruler or like Whole Ruler, something, something like that. Um, so, and of course, Henry comes from the same etymology as Heinrich. So, you kind of have that going for you. So... Uh, four or five different names, all meaning kind of sort of the same thing, um, but just there you go. So technically, we're on we're living on the continent of uh, North Henry, 
and the United States of Henry, at least I am. I know some of you are uh, not U.S. citizens, which is not a problem. But yeah, so just uh, just kind of keep that in mind. As for Vespucci, I couldn't get a firm origin on the name. It is related to wasp, Vespa, in, in Italian. Uh, it, it's probably like a, a place name. Uh, maybe a... Maybe the family took it from a uh, like a home that was located near where wasps were living, or perhaps they took it as kind of like a an, like a a representative of a family. It might have become like a family sigil. I think their coat of arms were like wasps, kind of flying diagonal on like a blue uh, a blue line through a uh, red shield. Uh, so maybe they were like, we're small, but we're fierce, and we can sting you. I don't know, uh, but there's I couldn't find like a specific place in Italy called uh, Ves- Vespucci or anything like that. And uh, the the uh, UCCI ending usually is like a diminutive, so it like means little wasp or something along those lines. But I could not get a firm confirmation on that if uh, any of my italian listeners which i think i have a couple at least people living in italy uh, they might be able to um, answer that with a little bit more clarity than i could so with all of the etymology out of the way let's move on to um, talking about mesoamerica and the peoples living there Uh, Now, last episode, we talked about how uh, they were undergoing kind of a a shift uh, towards the middle to the end of our our episode uh, with the slow, or the beginnings, at least the beginnings of the developments of agriculture. And I talked about some of the crops that they had begun to uh, harvest or... um, nurture that were originally found in the Tehuacan Valley in southern Mexico, which I think technically is just outside of what is widely considered to be Mesoamerica, but it's right in that border region. Uh, It's one of, it's a really good place to enter Mesoamerica from like the Gulf Coast side of Mexico, uh, like northern Mexico, central to northern Mexico, uh, it'd be a really good place just to kind of um, kind of work your way down through the um, the plateau and uh, more drier climates of northern Mexico. It'd be a great place to enter into Mesoamerica. So this is one of those places where we talked about where it's an ectone, where you've got all these different environments fairly close to each other. So not only is it a good place to move when you need uh, rain, which is, again, probably how most of the early agriculture started. You know, they were they were relying on regular rain to help their crops grow. Uh, but as central uh, and northern Mexico begin to see less and less rain uh, year to year, Again, because the climate's changing, it's getting drier in these regions like it is in the southwestern, or what will become the southwestern U.S. Uh, these places further south, they don't have that problem. They're 
you know, they're still in the tropics. They still have rainforests and things like that. So this is a great place to go to keep uh, experimenting with these crops. And then you also, of course, have the benefit of, you know, a lot of different animal and uh, wild plant vegetation to kind of uh, sustain yourselves with while you are supplementing your diet with these um, semi-tame or semi-domesticated to domesticated crops. Now, uh, that um, the period that we're talking about sees a rise of a uh, protoculture, if you will, um, very similar to what we've kind of looked at in some of the earlier, uh, other early uh, semi-agricultural, horticultural societies, and it is referred to as uh, el riego, uh, which is uh, just irrigation if you translate it. Uh, and now this period itself is kind of hard to date. Uh, there are different uh, sources that have it much earlier, starting maybe as early as 8,600. And there are some that have it starting as early as 6,800. Um, and then they will then continue until uh, 5,700 or 5,000 BC. So uh, the longest stretch you have is, again, 8,600 to 5700 BC, and then kind of the narrow stretch is uh, 6,800 to 5,000 BC. And uh, this is all debated, and unfortunately, a lot of it is in Spanish, which is a little bit easier for me to translate, but there were some things I just could not could not make heads or tails in, and then with like some of the scientific terms, they don't translate quite as well. Uh, into English, but um, generally speaking, what I can gather is that this early irrigation phase is kind of a shift from not the um, uh, from the older Paleolithic to a archaic slash Neolithic uh, period, where you, again you see these more specialized tools start to emerge, and hunter gatherer groups begin to transition to more established. Um, seasonal camps. They're, they're staying in one place for longer periods. Uh, now, they don't have actual irrigation just yet. That's just the term because it's kind of like they are flooding the field to prepare for um, the crops to grow kind of deal. It's more of a, uh, shall we say, uh, descriptive or poetic term than an actual uh, descriptive term, I think is the best way to put it. Though, uh, towards the end of their period, they are they are practicing full-blown agriculture, much as some people in the Middle East and Asia are doing um, at this uh, later period. And, uh, of course, as this is happening, you do have this, you do have some sites where there's almost no agricultural pre present, and sites where there's a lot more agriculture than anything else. Uh, so you can kind of see that there is this big divide between, you know, groups more focused on the hunting gathering side of things and groups that are surely shifting to more uh, sedentary lifestyles. 
Now, uh, these people appear to be fairly closely related. I don't think they've gotten any real firm DNA evidence, but there's not a huge amount of signs of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of conflict between these groups. Now, there are, of course, cases of, um, you know, people dying young or apparently from uh, violent, uh, meeting violent ends, but that's not to say that this is happening you know, just between sedentary and hunter-gatherer groups. It could be happening between two different sedentary groups. It could be happening between two different hunting-gathering groups. It's, it's nothing out of the ordinary from what we've seen anywhere else. It's, there's not like a huge uptick in violence uh, with these people living different lifestyles. In fact, it may have dropped violence for all we know. It could be, you know, people living off of different resources. There's not as much of a need to competition. This could have led to a quicker kind of melding of these larger scale cultures that are going to emerge in the coming millennia. Um, but again, it's really hard to say because we don't have a lot of DNA evidence. However, um, we do see that they continue to use stone and bone tools. There's no uh, evidence of metallurgy um, at this early period, which of course Mesoamerica is not known for that, but they also don't, I believe, have any uh, silver or gold that will kind of make the region famous at later times. Um, these people also uh, experimented greatly with different types of um, projectile points. I think uh, there have been a number of sites that they have like a, they used a wide variety of shapes. They didn't really have kind of a one specific type that they used. Uh, so this, you know, could mean a couple of things. Either there was no one group or one uh, type of weapon that was preferred, uh, depending on, you know, what you were hunting. Uh, they appear to have uh, been very good woodworkers. Uh, they are getting these really, you know, hard uh, hardwoods like, uh, you know, I think things like, uh, I think teak is in that region, um, which is something, you know, people outside of Africa haven't really been dealing with, like these super sturdy, um, powerful woods. Um, you also, we also find evidence of weaving similar to the basket weaving kind of to the north uh, west of North America, the Pacific Northwest, uh, you have, um, there's evidence that they're trapping animals as well. Uh, they found some remains of what look like, uh, you know, small cages and things like that. Also, uh, they have a number of type of food processing tools, uh, things like, um, uh, food grinding stones, you know, these early mortar and pestles, things like that. Of course, these are these are much larger. They're probably using them for a lot more than a, a small personal use. They're probably using it for a whole group of, you know, maybe 100, 200, 300, 400 people, somewhere in that range. Um, all of this can be dated to, at some point in the El Rego uh, period. Uh, now, again, there's some timing complications here, so some of this could be happening towards the end of or right after uh, the timeline here, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me that, again, I think we're seeing at least some early versions of all of this during this season. 
Uh, now here we also have evidence again of deliberate burials, which is again something that we've really only seen at a couple of sites in other places. Um, you know where they're they're kind of setting aside a, a place for the dead. Uh, places like well, where we had I think uh, Chattahoyuk and uh, Jericho and um, Gobekli Tepe where um, excuse me no it's just the it's just the pre-pottery and Neolithic sites like Jericho where they had uh, ancestors buried under homes you had those uh, sites in China where they had like separate graveyards it looked like so something similar that they're they're developing uh, a much richer kind of um, culture for like burying the dead this is something that is is changing there is also some evidence and it is debated but there is some evidence that some of these humans share or some of these remains share wounds similar to uh, remains found in later periods that we know for sure were victims of a human sacrifice um, which not unique to Mesoamerica this is something that's going to still probably happening at least at some scale all over the world um, and again it is debated but if it is human sacrifice this is an extremely extremely old version of it uh, I haven't talked too much about the idea of sacrifice just yet uh, and how it has evolved in human religion and culture um, but uh, that is something we are going to discuss more in the future but again it's debated but uh, you know it's but it's not something that's strictly tied to Mesoamerica but it is something that uh, of course does happen there at quite a large scale uh, much later but if it you know if it's been practiced that long then you know that's pretty uh, it's pretty surprising that uh, they're, they're that this aspect of their religion lasted for so long or I shouldn't say their religion there are multiple religions in the area but the practice is not just tied to any one religion but the practice is tied to pretty much every religion for or at least not every religion but a lot of religions in the area that this concept is tied uh, so closely to a number of different groups and has been tied to them since the days of their ancestors um, now, in addition to a lot of different points, uh, you know, stone types and stone uh, point designs for their weapons, uh, we have also found evidence they're using smaller uh, throwing weapons, um, smaller even than javelin, things like darts. Uh, and these are, of course, bigger than what you would see, like, on a dartboard. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of like a mid, you know, a fairly sizable weapon. And of course, later, you know, the blowgun will be in use, I think, further south in some places in what is now um, the Yucatan Peninsula and like um, Honduras and Guatemala, as well as some other places. Uh, but in addition to those variety of types of stone tools, they have a access to a lot of different types of stone. They have access to obsidian. Uh, due to the volcanoes in the area. Obsidian is going to be very important. I've talked before about obsidian and how it was used in places around near, uh, near um, East Africa. Uh, obsidian can be made extremely sharp. 
Uh, and while, um, you know, while not necessarily the strongest stone, you know, it is still extremely useful. And uh, very highly sought after. And it looks cool. I mean, it's just jet black, shiny. Um, it, it's great, <laughs> essentially. Um, you also have uh, items such uh, made from jade. Uh, that, you know, jade, the, the stone. This is something we've seen even in parts of uh, modern China. Uh, jade uh, artifacts are, you know, highly sought after very early. And it's very, this, very much the same here. Um, and I know I mentioned uh, the crops that they had begun to experiment with in um, in uh, the Tehuacan Valley that they're beginning to move south. They also uh, are eating wild varieties of a number of fruits, such as avocado. Now they are not going to attempt to uh, uh, domesticate these for at least another thousand years. But these fruits, of course, are going to eventually um, be used in trade. Even it's possible, even wild varieties are used in trade uh, before you know they attempt to um, domesticate them. Uh, and of course, this is also where you're, they're eating uh, or they're using wild cacao um, as well as um, uh, chilies as well, uh, like. Uh, red peppers and yellow peppers and things like that. Uh, but again, they're not, uh, they're, they're, at least we found no evidence of them domesticating yet. We don't see kind of a transition to those being domesticated until much later. Uh, well, not much, not necessarily much later, but at least a thousand years after this season ends, possibly, possibly uh, earlier. Um, but yeah, so... Of course, we have all that. Um, now, as you move through the uh, south, uh, or as you move to the south um, from uh, the Tehuacan Valley and or the region around what is modern day uh, the Yucatan, or what is the Yucatan Peninsula, Guatemala, that type of region, you are um, eventually getting further and deeper into much denser rainforests. Now the population density in these areas is much lower than the places we've been talking about. Most of uh, the humans in this region would be permanent nomads for quite some time to come. Uh, but you're probably towards the very end of this season beginning to see some groups form very small semi-permanent settlements and these would be very um, popular around lakes. Uh, you've got, um, well, Lake Nicaragua for one, uh, Lake um, Alajuela, uh, and uh, there are some rivers as well, um, but uh, I think uh, Lake Arenal is another, but there, there are quite a few lakes um, that will eventually become kind of zones for uh, permanent habitation, um, as will, of course, these rivers as well. But again, there's not too much in terms of uh, permanent settlement. Uh, they are, of course, developing the uh, Neolithic tools, the, the much smaller bladelets, um, the more specialized bladelets, but um, Getting through the rainforest would have to be uh, extremely difficult. 
Uh, and I think eventually, um, probably there'd be periods where uh, it would be easier to kind of get to the coast and then sail around and then cut up uh, that way. Um, and of course, there is even today the famous uh, Darien Gap, which is, of course, like a, a kind of a mountainous rainforest area that kind of cuts or it makes travel between North America and South America by foot extremely difficult and dangerous. And of course, that's even today. So even in, or in these earlier periods, it would it would be the same as well. And this kind of serves as kind of a, a sieve uh, between interactions between uh, the North and the South. Uh, there's not to say there is none. There certainly is. We've already talked a little bit about how uh, certain crops are spread even at an earlier period between North and South and how that'll happen continuously as well. Uh, and I believe uh, pottery is also uh, kind of transported between these areas. But a lot of the more profitable routes, or at least the more, I guess, routes with more volume at least, will probably be sea-based and um, happen at a later period. Um, now again, there are people living in these areas. It's just extremely small numbers. Uh, today, I think, between the countries of Central America, um, I believe it's around 150-some-odd um, million. No, I'm sorry. No, that, that includes... Never mind. No, there's about 52 million people in Central Ameri American... Uh, countries, not including uh, Mexico. Uh, Mexico kind of it's, is its own thing. Um, and they're, they're, I believe, around 100 people per square kilometer, which is like 260 people per square mile. Uh, and, of course, there's... This is um, about 520 some odd uh, square kilometers and um, so for miles it's like 200,000 square miles and again this is a number of countries Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador so a lot of these people are you know in very you know densely packed kind of population centers um, uh, so you have uh, you know, fairly large cities in terms of population compared to the population of their uh countries as a whole um, but there are people that even today live some in some places a semi-nomadic lifestyle uh, I believe in Panama there are the Embera um, and the uh, um, the Guna or Guana people I'm not sure which is the correct pronunciation uh, but they're you know they have had to contend with uh, control from their centralized governments that control the territory in the in the places they live. Uh, so this is you know, uh, and this kind of tension between sedentary and non-sedentary groups isn't something necessarily that the Central Americans have had to, or the Central American indigenous population has had to deal with until fairly recently. I think even during. Um, periods where uh, there were centralized states in, uh, in, for instance, the Yucatan with the Maya, um, uh, 
they these people were probably extorted for uh, tribute or for trade or for slaves, but um, it was probably yeah. That that's always happened, uh, and that but that's something that's going to happen later. But um, you know, with the emergence of those sedentary societies, uh, these indigenous people have had to deal with you know the comings, the rises and falls of these civilizations, and they've had to kind of work around them to maintain this type of lifestyle uh, that is very difficult again in this region due to the environment. Um, but uh, we know that they practice, you know, uh, their own arts. They, they of course, have weaving. Um, they uh, have a very high degree of skill with dyeing uh, things as well. Uh, and they uh, make, you know, traditional jewelry uh, from a, a number of local stone and things like that. Uh, material, also seashells. Um, so this is something that they're probably practicing even into this day, uh, that they were practicing at this earlier period. Um, and then in, as time has gone on, they're having to deal with more people kind of moving in to these, this region. Um, but there are some places that do begin to practice kind of their own kind of agriculture. It's never as high a scale as it is uh, in places further uh, to the north and uh, west or to the south uh, in South America. But um, the people living there at our time period, they're going to continue this way of life, in some cases even to the modern day. Um, also, I should point out that uh, I don't think I've mentioned it too much, but at least in Mexico and South America... Uh, there is a lot of evidence for a more egalitarian hunter-gatherer society. Uh, we have evidence in a number of places that at least young women uh, are participating in hunts with men. Uh, and that is that's something I think is happening in North America as well, at least maybe at a later period. I don't know if we can date it to our current time frame. But that is something that does happen on occasion. I know I've said that most hunter-gatherer societies, at least as far as we know, it's usually male hunters, female gatherers, but of course there are always going to be exceptions, even in those societies. Uh, but here, at least at this earlier period, it does appear that at least younger women would partake in hunting along with the men. Why this is happening we don't really know. It could be a number of factors. It could be necessity. It could be uh, it, it could be something that it is just uh, it's just done that way. It could have been um, something that started as a necessity and then evolved into just the way it is. It could have become a tradition from a necessity, or perhaps uh, women were considered uh, sacrosanct and they were used to negotiate with other groups. Uh, that kind of thing. It could have been kind of a, a kind of a peaceful sign, like, "Hey, we've got women with us. We're not going to attack you." Um, or the women would perhaps be negotiating. Perhaps this was something that was done to uh, intermarry and interconnect groups more easily. Who can say? And again, this has happened. I think they found a couple of sites uh, throughout um, Mesoamerica and uh, northern South America where this is uh, happening. It's not super widespread, but it is something that did happen in this area 
on occasion, uh, or at least for a, a period of time. Um, of course, that will eventually change for some of these places, though in other places, you know, female uh, matriarchy or female uh, lineage tracing is very important, and we'll talk about that. I think, in fact, the um, the uh, Imbera, I think they trace um, matrilineal descent um, primarily over uh, paternal uh, descent. So, um, yeah, so that's something that, again, is very old tradition and is even carried for in some places by some people even to this day. Um, oh, also uh, in this area, um, we talked about um, corn. I believe also that these people may have been among the first to domesticate cassava, uh, which is a root. Uh, it's also extremely poisonous. Uh, you have to cook it in a very specific way to um, make it edible. Um, but uh, also they they use a calabash, those, uh, which is, again, the, the Asian gore that uh, gets spread. Um, they're you know, very, uh, of course, it, these would actually be the best place for these to grow in the kind of the rainforest area. Uh, it's very close to what they probably emerged with in Africa. Um, and of course, a lot of these people do tattoo themselves. Uh, now we don't obviously have much evidence of that at this time because uh, there's no soft tissue to look at. But uh, it's very possible that this could be a very old tradition. Uh, oh, speaking of decorations, one thing I forgot: uh, back up north uh, in uh, in the uh, uh, irrigation culture, El Rigado. Um, they have found stone items which didn't necessarily, they didn't really stand out in like what they were doing, but they were very clearly um, crafted and uh, worked to be the shape they were in. And they were investigating, they're like, oh, wait, these are uh, stone piercings uh, and loops and things like that, which we know from. Uh, depictions of, uh, I think both the Mayan and the Aztecs have depictions of like body modification. We have uh, Spanish uh, records of that. Um, so, body modification, uh, piercings, loops, things like that could have been uh, or were, at least at some level, also practiced in this region even at this very early period. So, um, there's a lot of uh, cultural ideas that are being carried forward even into uh, recorded periods. Um, how these evolved exactly, we can't really say, um, but uh, I'm sure that some of these uh, things we will eventually get into and talk about a um, talk about a little bit more in depth. Uh, so yeah, I think this is kind of a good place to stop it. Um, We'll have an episode next week. I'm going to try to have it out at its regular time, but again, it is Thanksgiving, so it might be delayed a little bit. Uh, but we we will move into South America, and then I think that will be, well, there will be at least two South America episodes, I'm sure, probably more. And then we'll go ahead and move on to Season 4. And I hope you guys are excited for that. But yeah. 
If you have any feedback, please let me know. You can reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter or X or whatever. And you, of course, can comment on my YouTube channel, any of my videos. might take me a little bit, but I will see it. I will look. I generally keep keep track there. Um, and I also stream some, sometimes on YouTube. If you ever want me to see any historical games or things I'm probably going to talk about at a future point, um, feel free to stop by and subscribe there. We're close to 100 subscribers on YouTube. Um, just uh, need, a, I think, about 400 more, give or take, and um, I can maybe start monetizing, at least on YouTube, and uh, get some money to put back into the podcast. But um, yeah, thank you all for coming by and listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll see you all next time. Have a good rest of your week, and if you are in the U.S. and celebrating, a good Thanksgiving. Thank you. Goodbye.